When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And I thought, (laughs) motherfucker, are you out of your mind? Have you ever been in public? Like, have you not seen the lunatics that walk the earth? I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And And I'm I'm a a writer, writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Kara Blue Adams, who is the author of the debut story collection, You Never Get It Back, named a New York Times book review editor's choice and winner of the John Simmons Short Fiction Award, judged by Brandon Taylor, who calls it a modern classic. Over 20 of Kara's stories appear in magazines such as Granta, The Kenyan Review, and Electric Literature. She has been awarded the Kenyan Review Short Fiction Prize, the Missouri Review Peden Prize, the Maringoff Prize in Fiction, and a Pushcart Prize Special Mention, along with a Center for Fiction Emerging Writer Fellowship and support from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Swanee Writers Conference, and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. She is an Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Seton Hall University and lives in Brooklyn. Welcome, Kara! Thank you so much! Welcome, welcome. Thank you for coming on. We were just talking about how much we love your book and how much everyone loves your book. I, um, You were so kind to send us a PDF of it, but I wanted to read it off of my phone. And so I was calling around to all the bookstores in Chicago, um, including Barnes & Noble and the Amazon bookstore, don't tell anyone. And um, <laughs> none of them had it in stock. And even um, Roscoe Books, who I love, said, um, we can, you know, it's on back order till February. And I said, that's okay. Um, and they said, <laughs> good luck getting a copy. <laughs> <laughs> and they were oh, right. God. Cause it was impossible. And so I had to fire up my old ass nook that, that, that I haven't used in years. Thank God it still works. And I bought it on Barnes and Noble and I, I read oh. it so fast. I loved it so much. It is just, I mean, it makes sense that that no one can get a copy anywhere because it is um, it is it's a modern classic. I I absolutely loved it, and um, I want to hear you read to us now. Um, absolutely, thank you so much for that um, kind introduction. Um, okay, well, I thought I would read just a very brief um, little bit from a, a short story called "Never Got Never Had," um, and I'll say "You Never Get It Back" is um, a linked short story collection. The stories basically all follow one young woman um, whose name is um, Kate Bishop through her 20s and early 30s. Um, And this story begins the second section of the book. Um, And in the first story in which we meet Kate, we also meet her college roommate Esme 
Kate comes from a kind of working class bohemian family, Esme comes from a, a more privileged background. Um, and in the story I'm about to read, Never Got, Never Had, um, Kate and Esme have reunited after college. Never gotten, never had. Esme is coming, and it can only be a mistake. She has left her graduate program, dissertation begun and abandoned, and now she is drifting around the country while her fiance completes an assignment in Rome. She met him at Stanford. The two things she tells me about him on the phone when she announces the news of their engagement and her plan to visit me are that he's taller than her, even if she's wearing heels, which is not a hard thing to be and suggests he is in fact short. And that he wants to go to business school, preferably to Wharton, after he finishes his PhD in computer science, which he is on track to do next year. We'll see at that point what their options are, she says, and I'm tempted to say, but don't. So the first person plural begins this early, huh? Her voice is triumphant, excited. And when I ask about her decision to give up on getting a doctorate herself, she says airily, oh, there are no jobs. But wouldn't you like the satisfaction of knowing you did it? Did something stupid? No. If you love it, it isn't stupid. I don't. You did. It's all archives and libraries. I wanted to read and travel, and I can do that without getting a useless degree. If I have to write one more grant application, I'll throw myself off a bridge, I swear to God. Not that you shouldn't finish yours. Science is different. It's practical. How long is she thinking of staying, I ask. What I don't say is that this is not a great time. Javier has moved in because he asked to, eight months into dating, and I stalled, and when he said, when he finally said it was obvious I wasn't into it, meaning moving in, but maybe also our whole relationship. I felt panicked and bad and said, yes, of course I wanted to live together. I was just nervous about my landlord's reaction. And now here we are, two people sharing an apartment too small for the both of us, or rather too small for him and me and my doubts. Not long, she says, maybe two weeks. Two weeks, I say, in what I hope is a neutral tone. We can go hiking, she says. And I can see this whole thing is doomed. I'll stop there. Kara, uh, before we get into the particulars of these stories, because um, I know Lindsay has a ton of questions, as do I, um, I was really curious to know about how this book came to publication. If uh, I know that it won the Iowa Short Fiction Award, and I was curious if that was something that happened early on in a submission process for you, if you had gone through rounds of submissions and then decided to send to a contest or I just wanted to hear a little bit about how this book came to exist. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's always a question I'm interested in myself. And, you know, I, I hope that the answer might kind of help other writers and, and maybe especially story writers who are facing that question of, of how to bring out a story collection. Um, so I worked on the book for a, a long time. Really for many years, I was just writing stories. I wasn't thinking about putting a book together yet. I was just trying to learn how to write a story. And then um, after writing and publishing a lot of stories, I decided to put together a collection. And initially it wasn't linked by character. Um, and I, I showed a draft to a couple of friends who were writers. And um, two friends said, yeah, you know, the themes and the voice hold the stories together. Um, you know, I would maybe just add a few stories and, and call it done. And, and two other readers said, you know, it might be interesting if, um, because the stories are so different in form, um, they're very different in terms of where they're set, 
Um, but some of the characters are kind of similar. It would be interesting to think about linking it by character. And so at that point, I decided, yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I want a strong central through line to hold the stories together to hopefully make the book bigger than the sum of its parts for readers. And I, I decided to link it by character. So I revised some old stories um, and then wrote some new stories about the character who was emerging. And, um, and then I decided um, to show it to, um, to agents. And I signed with my amazing agent, um, Claudia Ballard, who I love very much. Love her. Hi, Claudia. <laughs> <laughs> She's the best. <laughs> um, I really love the writers she represented. And I um, spoke with her at a conference and just really loved her um, and her energy. And so when she said she wanted to work together, I was just thrilled. Um, and so, um, you know, she had some suggestions as well. And I wrote a couple of new stories um, using her sort of questions and ideas as guidance. And yeah, then we went out with it um, to a number of presses. And, um, you know, I was expecting it would take a long time, <laughs> um, but it all happened really quickly. And, you know, some people wanted to offer, but marketing teams weren't sure what to do with the book exactly because mm -hmm. it's not a traditional collection, mm -hmm. but it's also not a novel exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, which I thought would make it easier for people thinking about books like Olive Kittredge or Girls. Yes, we, we it talk about that. always comes up on the show. Yes, I mean. <laughs> Olive we, Kittredge is like the go-to. Oh, Olive Kittredge. Yeah, yeah and, you know, so like uh, Goon Squad, you know, like it's. Squad. Mm -hmm. We exist. I'm saying we. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I it's one of my favorite formats and I know so many people love it as well. And, and it's interesting because because those are called novels and stories, but you did not call this a novel and story stories. And I don't know if that's like a marketing choice that was made or whatever, but it, it is called a collection of stories, right? Um, yeah, I, I think Claudia sort of told editors, you can read it however you'd like. And some people said it felt like a collection and a few people said I read it as a novel. So <laughs> it's funny how that decision gets made. Yeah. It is. It's so funny. It's like, it's like when you're going to grad school and you have to say, I only write fiction. I never try to write poetry or, or nonfiction. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I... I really feel for editors and for publishing houses because, you know, it's it's just so hard, I think, to know what's going to find an audience and how that's going to happen. And, um, and so, you know, at the end of the submission process, um, there were two editors we wanted to go back to with a revision of the collection, um, you know, potentially to make it um, a little bit more, I don't know, um, a little bit less novelistic perhaps yeah. they weren't really sure we weren't really sure but they were interested enough that you know we kind of thought well i've written so many stories this book could look a lot of different ways you know we'll we'll try some different combination out um and then claudia went out on leave um because she was having her second child and then the pandemic happened oh my gosh <laughs> and we we sort of had to leave our tiny studio apartment in Brooklyn abruptly because we couldn't both teach from it at the same time. And I was going up for tenure and I sort of thought, well, you know, I'm just going to send to just a couple of contests. Mm. Um, and I loved Brandon's taste so much and really respect his fiction. And I just, 
when I saw he was judging the Iowa contest, I just thought he would just, it would mean so much to me if my work spoke to him. Um, and so I sent it to just a couple of contests thinking, you know, it takes years often to win one of these if you are lucky enough to win. And then I <laughs> got the news. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so then I had to, you know, call Claudia and say, hi, I didn't mention this, but I just, you know, sent this out to these contests. And it turns out that I won um, this contest and she was thrilled. You know, she, she said she thought it was a great way for the book to come out and, um, and we decided to, to move forward. That's, that's really cool that she was, that she was so down with it. Yeah. Something that I really love and respect about her is that I think she thinks like holistically about her writers and, you know, sees them as people she's going to work with for their whole careers. Yeah. Um, So a different agent, you know, I had a list of some more commercial houses that friends work with and, you know, suggested their editors might want to see the book. And so I'd asked her, do you, should we try this? You know, and she sort of said, you know, I just don't think that's the right place for this book. I I want to make sure it, it finds the audience it deserves. And I want you to be, you know, received, um, in, in the way that makes sense for you as a writer. So I just, yeah, she's amazing. How did you come to start the collection with I Met Lost the other day? Because it's a very interesting bookend. It starts with this almost like fable mm-hmm. meeting this character Loss. And then the book ends with Kate about to become a mother. Um, I just wanted to know like how you structured it, how you came to make these decisions um, and how you gave yourself the permission to, to include a story from Kate's mother, Kate's mother's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in a, in an earlier version of the story, there were a couple of other fabulous stories. Um, that's a mode I enjoy and write in sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I came to find that there was just too much variety in that initial version. Um, and so I decided, well, I'll just mainly, you know, include realist stories, but I met lost the other day felt like, even though it's an unconventional place to begin the book, it felt to me like the right place. Yeah. The book is so much, I think, about loss and mm-hmm. what we lose, what it means to lose things, and then what new thing perhaps comes into our life as a result. Because um, I think moving through life is just a constant process, right? As, as time passes, inevitably we, we lose things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think the time that you spend with the things that you've lost gives that loss a kind of kind of shape a kind of ghostly presence in your life mm-hmm. um and also loss is just the necessary condition for changing and growing and, and moving forward um and so the book you know is very much about what kate loses and what new meanings she makes in her life um and so you know my hope was that readers would be able to come with me you know um in that leap from that fabulous story that's kind of thematically related, but not literally related to the, the story of, of Kate Bishop's life into her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you know, the this, this story in which we meet her, um, which is the title story of the collection, You Never Get It Back, it's um, set around, you know, New Year's um, in 1999, New Year's Eve, 1999. And that to me, and she's on her way to a party. And that just felt like such an auspicious opening. <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember exactly where I was. So I was like, okay, 
I'm in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like I, <laughs> I was around that age. I'm in, let's go. <laughs> I love it. Where, where were you that, that New Year's Eve? I was in central Florida, Orlando. <laughs> I was um, in a new relationship and I ended, I didn't even get to count down. I was on the floor of his bathroom trying not to barf. so not great and kate also had a very not great (laughs) new year's so oh that feels classic i would like to read a short story based on that i I, i'll work on it (laughs) it's like i had doritos to eat and then just like 12 cranberry vodkas and it was not my best (laughs) decision That story, it's so, it's, it, in addition to, you know, I met Lost the other day, sort of setting the tone, which I think also sort of tracks with Kate becoming a writer as the book moves um, Mm -hmm. and the way that she would sort of think about things. Um, But uh, that story starts out to me, it was very Sue Millery and I love Sue Miller. Um, It's just like this confident sort of like wry look at the people around her and her situations and um but then it ends very differently it ends shockingly and Mm -hmm. and like and like a quiet shock um and i wondered if you could talk about about writing that story specifically and how i don't want to spoil it for people but yeah what 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 was that like for you yeah um so so writing you never get it back um, that was the rare story where I actually began basically with the ending in mind. Wow. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't usually work that way for me, but if there's one thing I've learned writing a bunch of stories, it's that, you know, things often work in different ways from story yeah. to story. Yeah. Um, actually with two of the, the, the most recent stories that I wrote in the collection, I actually started with the title, which is super unusual Ooh, <laughs> yeah it, yeah I, that I has know never happened to me I have the worst time with titles which ones yeah I, yeah I usually struggle too well never got never had actually wow uh, yeah that title came to me and I I didn't know how it was going to be a part of the story and it was so fun to kind of wait for the title to announce itself within the story yes, yes. it reminds me of a song title Actually, many of these remind me of song titles, but that one in particular. Oh, I love that. Yes. Someone write a song called Never Got, Never Had. <laughs> um, so writing, you never get a back, the story. I was reading a lot of Donald Antrim at the time. I really oh, loved it. Yes. Yeah. Are you, you both are fans. Mm, big time. Yeah, he's such an interesting writer because he has these three, you know, experimental novels, which are funny and weird. Um, and then a memoir in essays, which is to me very funny, um, but also very heartbreaking and, and very real. Um, and then a collection of short stories, which are much more realist than his novels. Mm. Um, so, you know, I feel like he might appeal to a range of readers. Yeah. Um, yeah, people might respond to different things of his. Um, but his short stories, I think, are just masterful. They Technically, they just do really astounding things. Um, and in one of them, there's a really great party scene. <laughs> mm. um, and so I was thinking it would be fun to write a party scene. And the ending of the story came to me. And 
Um, and then the first line came and then I just followed it from there and it came really quickly. I wrote it in maybe two days and then wow. I spent a little time just moving some lines and some backstory around a little bit. Um, <laughs> that part took several years actually. <laughs> oh my gosh. Very little changed, <laughs> Wow! but I would make these small adjustments and then put it down and read it again a couple months later. Um, but most of it came in that, in that first kind of two day rush. Mm. I love that approach of having a sense that, ah, you know what, maybe writing a party scene would be fun or something that I haven't done before. And then just going and doing it. One of the most useful things I ever learned in grad school was, um, when I was studying with Stuart Dybeck, his, uh, his big piece of advice was if you don't really know, you know, what to write about or you're stuck, just think about the kind of story that you haven't read before in a very basic way, just like subject, you know, have you, have you read a great gas station story? No. Okay. Write that. Have you read a great, you know, I don't know, wash a pen in, 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 you know, in the washing machine story. No. Okay. Own that. And I kind of love the idea of just staking something out or, or being inspired by something you're reading and just kind of approaching it in a basic way and then adapting it for your own purposes, however, you know, whatever they may be. It's a, it's a really great start starting place. I, yeah, I love that idea of his, and I'm such a fan of his. I love his work so much. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. He's just incredible. But yeah, I mean, that, that strikes me as like a way to help you defamiliarize or absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What your, maybe what your material might be. Right. Yeah. It forces you, I think, to bring more of yourself to it than, than possibly you might've, or maybe be a little bit less self-conscious if you already know, okay, Hey, I'm at a, I'm at a gas station here. Obviously I'm going to, I know the components. Everyone knows the components, which is kind of the, the great part of having a broad starting place like that. And then what you bring to it, hopefully you're a little bit less conscious of, and you're able to, to get some words down. I don't know. Yeah. It can be a really helpful starting place. Yeah. Have you tried that, Alex? Have you ever? Absolutely not. No, no. (laughs) I I don't take any advice. I'm too stubborn and and thick-headed, but I'll definitely repeat it out loud. (laughs) I was not expecting you to say that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible and precious and, and terrible. Yeah, it totally tracks. I, I'm such a full on idiot, but yeah. Uh, but such a great writer too. <laughs> I really, I know I keep bringing this up. I want to talk about the, the, um, the story from the mother's perspective, which is at the wrong time to the wrong people. I really want to hear you talk about that. Um, because it's very short. It's the shortest story in the book, I believe. Um, and it's the only time we really get anyone else's perspective, but Kate's, um, and it's the story of Kate and her sister are, are younger. They're like in elementary school, I think. And it's the story of them deciding that they have to put their family dog down. And there's this moment, and I'm sorry, I'm spoiling this for everyone, but it, it won't be spoiled because you'll read the story and it'll be just as affecting. Um, she decides you know, she's sort of waffling as the vet is, is, you know, helping put the dog down and thinking that she should have given the dog instead of the wool blanket that she has given the dog, she should have given the dog the down blanket she has on her bed. Um, But she does can't afford to buy herself a new down blanket. So she didn't, 
Well, then when the dog has died and is being put in the back of the vet's truck, she decides to go get the blanket and she, she, she gives it. Um, she says to the vet, do you mind? The vet shakes his head. He stands back, lets her tuck the blanket around the dog. The dog's legs are splayed unnaturally as though he has slipped on a wet floor. His body is no longer his own. When she secures the blanket's edges around his hips, his hindquarters don't respond to her touch. I have given everything at the wrong time to the wrong people, she thinks. Holy shit. <laughs> I will never forget that. I will never forget that line and that moment and that story. And I mean, it's, um, I mean, we can talk about this being the Stuart Dybeck putting the dog down story, but I'm sure there's others putting the dog down story, stories out there. And it's already, you know, that's already going to be an emotional thing. The emotions are right there. Everyone knows what that's like. If you've ever had a pet that most of us have. So it's genius because we're immediately there. We're immediately emotional with her. And we have had this, you know, two thirds of the book of Kate and Kate talking about her childhood and her mother and the tension in her mother's face and, and, you know, wanting to see her mother happy. And there's a moment, I think in the story right before that, where Kate says, I just want to know why she's so afraid all the time. Then we get this Mm -hmm. story and I just, it's brilliant how it comes right after that. It's, it's, it's brilliant how emotional it is, how beautiful it is. But that line is for all time. Like that line is you never have to write anything ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) You're done. You have done it. (laughs) You done did it. Great work. <laughs> we actually joke that um the, the dog that my partner and I have now um Blaze. Blaze. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um that he's like so excited that I've published the book because you know now now I'm done. <laughs> yes, yes. Now you can just be his mom. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he really does not love um writing or reading increasingly because it takes attention away <laughs> <laughs> dog knows what's up <laughs> he does. he'll come up to me when I'm reading and just gently put his paw in my hand and, and push my hand to close the book <laughs> listen I believe dogs know things okay and we have to listen <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, I'm so I'm so glad that you responded so strongly to that story it's a, it's a story that means a lot to me too um I, you know, one of the few things I knew was where that story was going to go in the book. Mm. Um, yeah, it felt like it went hand in hand with that other story, the sea latch about yeah. Kate, her relationship with her mom um, and the disconnection between them and, and also the similarities between them too, I think. Um, yeah, it felt, it's interesting. I think one thing I was thinking about when I put the collection together um, actually put together and taught a graduate class on the linked collection as I was thinking about how collections work Um, because my partner jokes that my motto is why do it when you can overdo it (laughs) 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 and it's true I was like well I can't possibly put together this collection until I taught a graduate class on the topic (laughs) read 50 linked collections oh my my gosh. gosh Well, then, yeah, you are the expert now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one collection that I, you know, thought about a lot as I was working the book is um, This Is How You Lose Her by Juno Diaz. Oh, yeah. 
his book Drown um, as well, which meant a lot to me when it came out for a bunch of reasons. Um, one being that he writes about um, you know, working class families and families that have experienced poverty, um, which wasn't something I'd encountered very much on the page. Um, and just the immediacy and honesty of the voice in Drown and in This Is How You Lose Her um, really spoke to me. And in This Is How You Lose Her, you know, we have one sort of character throughout the book, um, Junior, and it's about his failures regarding women. Um, and then there's one story in the middle of the collection that's from the point of view of a woman. Mm -hmm. And to me, it realigns the whole book um, or becomes sort of the, the center around which the other stories orbit in some way. Um, and I, I just, I love that idea that you can take one story and in this kind of kaleidoscopic way, um, you know, refocus what all the other stories are doing mm -hmm. through yeah. that story. Um, and to me, moving into Kate's mother's perspective was an attempt to do something like that, to reorient the reader in a way that I hope is productive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you could have easily, it could have been a memory that Kate had, you know, watching this happen, watching her mother's reaction, even watching her mother get the blanket. I mean, and she doesn't, she's not there in the story and her, her and her sister are not there. Um, but you gave it to her mother. And I just, I just think it's such a beautiful, profound choice that you made and paid off, you know, in spades. Thank you. That. <laughs> The first time I read that story out loud, actually, um, was in graduate school. And I'll, I'll, never, I'll never read it aloud again, probably, because one of my classmates just burst into tears. Oh, God. Yeah. Get up and leave the room. Oh, <laughs> oh it is. It is oh. so devastating. And so the dog, but also her mother. And it's just everyone. I mean, please. <laughs> run don't walk <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people listening have read it already because this book blew up right I think I can't tell because <laughs> it's, been, it's been such a big presence in my life for so long but it's it's been overwhelming that people have been reading it and responding to it it's it's vindication for uh, story collections because we're told over and over again and we're told over and over again specifically about novels and stories or linked stories that readers don't know what to do with that. You know, you talked a little bit about that in the submission process and it's vindication because uh, like I said, I couldn't find a copy and um, <laughs> it was an editor's choice, the New York times, you know, editor's choice. And um, you know, it's everywhere. How does that feel to have a book kind of take off like that? Um, yeah, I, I, it feels amazing. Yeah, good. <laughs> feels really, really good. I think, you know, it was hard to let go of the book because it's, it felt so private and so close to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I've had so many friends publish books and I, I know that it doesn't it maybe, you know, solve things in your life in the way you, you can imagine when you're younger, for example. Um, so I just never spent much time sort of <laughs> imagining how rewarding it could be to publish a book. I was just focused on the writing and, um, and yeah, to, to, you know, be taken seriously by critics whose opinions I really value, um, 
to be read by people who've read the book so closely and carefully and thoughtfully. Um, it's, it's been really incredible. Yeah. I think if Brandon Taylor says something about your book, you know, it's true. Yeah. And you know how there are people who like just have really different tastes than yeah. you. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it would be great if, you know, someone with very different tastes, of course, liked my book, but to know that Brandon loves Mavis Gallant and Alice Monroe and, yes. um, you know, this, the same writers who are touchstone writers for me. <laughs> um, and, you know, he has a background in science and Kate is a scientist, which is something I am not. <laughs> How did so you pull that off? Like, I felt so glad given, you know, the books that he loves, that he liked the book. And then just so relieved that he wasn't like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> I can't believe you said you don't have a science background. I assumed that you did because the details about Kate's work seem very specific and um, technical to me. <laughs> so I was like, oh, Kara obviously studied this at some point. <laughs> wow. <laughs> No, and in fact, I read a um, a very detailed book geared toward the general reader about um, the biology of sight, and then ended up using pretty much none of that. Wow. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Although it took me like two months to get through it, it was <laughs> a really a really good book, but also a, a fairly challenging one. So what I ended up doing, actually, you know, after reading that book and understanding oh, you know, a lot of what I need to know, in fact, is not going to be contained in a book like this. Um, I had lunch with a friend who's a writer, Keelan Hughes, um, really wonderful Irish writer. Um, and her partner, um, Paul Berens, who's also a great writer. Um, and I told them, you know, I'm, I'm sort of freaking out because I need to revise a few stories that are about, you know, some of the background in optical physics. <laughs> and I don't know how I'm gonna learn what I need to know. And Paul just, <laughs> you know, just sort of very calmly was like, oh, well, actually, I'm an optical physicist, or I used <gasps> to be. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was That's just wild. Like, it was like a dream. It was <laughs> just like the solution to your problems just happens to be like sitting across the table from you. Like, when does that happen? <laughs> that just really confirms for me that we're living in a simulation and this book was going to be pulled from you, whether you liked it or not. <laughs> <laughs> book was alive okay <laughs> but he really sweetly you know, I sent him a list of questions and he very kindly like wrote back and, and answered all of my questions and so that wow. was in part how I was able to get some of what I got right right who who else were you reading as you as you were uh, writing and putting this together, you mentioned Juno Diaz. What other linked story collections did you admire or even just like short story writers that that you love? Yeah, um, so many. So Jesus is Son by Dennis Johnson. Yes, Dennis. oh my God. Yeah, that book just, it's somehow never the same book twice. Yeah. Every time I reread it, I there's something else that strikes me because he's just, the stories are so um, streamlined and compressed, but also so capacious and yeah. he's so specific. The details are just amazing. The language is amazing. His work with images and he's just incredible. Um, and, um, and I started to think actually of the narrators being a little bit like um, if 
the main character in Jesus's son, um, whose name is Buckhead. <laughs> if he had uh, lived in the Northeast and, and had a daughter who decided oh. to lead a very different life. <laughs> yes. Wow. Now I need to go back and read. <laughs> Think of her as Fuckhead's daughter. <laughs> um, That's the subtitle of the book, by the way. Yes, exactly. You never get exactly it back, Fuckhead's daughter. Don't take that from me. That's going to be my linked collection. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I'll dedicate it to Kara. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Dennis Johnson, um, Olive Kittredge. Really love that book. Um, did you read the sequel I did all of again did you like it as much I I haven't read it I haven't read it I liked it a lot but maybe not quite as much okay um maybe because Olive Kittredge spans so much time and you get to know her husband and various community members I love how capacious that book is yes um, and all of, again, I was thrilled to spend more time with her and Stroud's an incredible story writer, um, but it feels not quite as capacious, I think. Okay. But still definitely worth reading. I read it, you know, in like two days and, and loved it. So I would definitely recommend it. Okay. I will. I shall. Um, and then I also, in that class, I also teach Jhumpa Lahiri, um, Interpreter of Maladies. Okay. I've never read that. Oh, oh, Lindsay. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> I know. I've, I've heard that time. And it's like the number of books that I should have read by now. It's really embarrassing. No, it's oh, there's no should, but it's just such a pleasure you have ahead of you. Like I'm yeah, so that's true. For you. <laughs> um, yeah, that is a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, she's a very elegant writer. Um, very sort of classic stories in a way. Yeah. And they're connected not by, you know, a single character, um, but by place. Um, so India and then America and India, Indian Americans um, in and around Boston. Um, so I, I love that book. That's another one I just return to time and time again. Um, Laura Vandenberg as well, The Isle of Youth. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yes. I really... You mentioned something that you were sort of spending a lot of time, like teaching yourself the story, like teaching yourself how to write a story. Mm-hmm. And um, something I really admire about her as well is like her openness about constantly learning and relearning these things that it's like, dude, you're Laura Vandenberg. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, but she is, she's just, you know, she's very open about like, okay, I've got to dive back in and teach myself how to do this again. And I feel the same way. Yeah. She's always pushing herself. It's it's incredible. And now she's boxing. I know. What the hell, man? (laughs) Can you just watch some TV like the rest of us? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. She's incredible. Oh, and then Justin Torres as well. We, the animals. I haven't read that really. Yeah. It's really good. And if you love Jesus's son, I feel like, yeah, we, the animals will be very up your alley. Um, and that's a novel, but it's written in brief, um, vignettes. And my understanding is it actually kind of began, um, as a story collection and then grew into a novel over time. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's like very compressed, very lyrical. He writes just like a beautiful sentence, a beautiful scene. 
um, and just carves away everything that's unnecessary. Um, and it's about kids growing up in a working class family upstate. Um, and it's both like heartrending and really funny too. Love it. It's on the list. <laughs> and then there are like 30 others, but that's, <laughs> that's a good sampling. <laughs> what are the other linked collections that you all love? Well, they'll never sink. Yeah. I was going to say we had mm-hmm. Adam O'Fallon price on early, um, in our pod and he has a, a novel and stories called Hotel Never Sink, and it is incredible. It's it's a it's a killer. It's just Ooh, awesome. I can't wait to read it. It's yeah. truly my favorite format. I I don't I don't get why there's such a drama about it, but I absolutely love these glimpses <laughs> and then going out and coming back in at a different time. It mm-hmm. feels it feels more poignant in a way. I don't know. It feels more. Um, like meaningful to me. I don't know. I don't, I mean, I love novels. I, I, I read constantly, but I just, I, maybe it's cause I've got like a flash fiction background, but it just feels so, I don't know. It, it just, it ups the ante for me. Yeah. I mean, writers like Stuart Dyback and Dennis Johnson, you know, I think they show us like how much we don't need on the page. Right. Definitely. Um, and that's something I love about the linked collection form is you can just carve away what you don't need and just leave what's essential. Yeah, it's so true. And I mean, a lot of times <laughs> the connective tissue can even be an absence of connective tissue and that's fine. Ooh, Alex. <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying? It's Alex true. Alex, die mean, back over here. Get the fuck out of here. No, that uh, was serious. That was, I'm being serious. That was beautiful. No, let's never be serious. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask, as as you know, someone who's published in a ton of great places, obviously had a lot of experience submitting stories to journals and all types of journals. It looks like you know some amazingly you know prestigious and really well known known ones and some smaller ones as well. Did you ever hit a fatigue with that? Is it something that? you still feel excited about, even though you've published a, a collection, do you still feel like in it or are you, kind of, do you feel like, I don't know if I can just like keep <laughs> sending stories out or having my agents send stories out. Is that, is that something that you've tired of? Hmm. Well, I haven't done it since publishing the collection, hmm. um, but that's because I just published everything. <laughs> <that> I <have>. <laughs> Take it all. <laughs> um. You know, when I first started sending stories out, the most helpful piece of advice for me um, was to, instead of, you know, aiming to get an acceptance, aim for a hundred rejections, mm. um, which, you know, for those of us who did well in school and like, like, oh, God. School, yes. right? yeah, like you, you work hard, you do your job and it works. <laughs> um, it's, it can be really tough, I think, to acclimate yourself to rejection and failure, which are such a big part of the writing and publishing process. Um, So that was really helpful to say my goal is just to get this in front of enough eyes that Mm -hmm. I can, you know, get, you know, find some good readers. And, you know, if they like it and accept it, great. And if not, I'll learn something through the rejections. and, you know, often if you aim for a hundred rejections, if you're also showing your work to people who are good and honest readers, you know, you'll probably get an acceptance along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the, yeah. Uh, 
the really bad readers are useful too, though. I think some of those really infuriating <laughs> pointed rejections can just be such wonderful fuel for years that you're able to just quote to yourself <laughs> too. So Alex, give us an you. example. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I got one. Uh, I remember one time I had a character in a diner and the note I got back was no one could ask for that many coffee refills. <gasps> and I thought, motherfucker. Are you out of your mind? Have you ever been in public? Like, have you not seen the lunatics that walk the earth? Like, just name a number. That's how many is possible. Like, you, like, give me a break. So I'll hold on that until my death. And I mean, I've published two books. He's published none. So whatever. Who's counting? Jesus. Have you not seen the lunatics who walk the earth? That is such <laughs> a, a beautiful title. <laughs> That it's is so a true, though. beautiful line, and it is also very Dennis Johnson-y. <laughs> it, is. it is. Yeah, I think one of the most helpful things for me as a story writer actually was um, for a number of years, I worked as an editor at the Southern Review. Mm. Um, and just seeing, you know, thousands of stories every year um, and coming to understand how a story might be like kind of working, <laughs> but not quite totally there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just saw patterns develop um, that you can see in the aggregate, but it's hard to see if it's just you writing a story and not not quite knowing what to do with it. Um, so that really helped me start to approach my own stories with that perspective of mm-hmm. having read like three thousand, most of which you know weren't quite getting there. Um, and so I think once that once I had that experience um, under my belt, when I picked up a story of mine at the end of the day, you know, at like six o'clock or whatever, when I was finished with my work for the magazine, I mean, it was never done, but <laughs> when I decided I was stopping, um, I would feel this sort of, I would feel like I was reading a story from the slush pile, reading my own work. And wow. God. It, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it's like, it gives you the best eyes, you know? Right. Um, cause if it, if it was lifeless, I knew it wasn't just that I was too familiar with it. Cause it was my story. I knew it really wasn't working. Right. And if it interested me and felt alive in some way, I knew it probably was really working in some way. And so then I, I stopped typically getting quite as many rejections. Um, cause I think the stories were just more finished when I sent them out. And then also I had editors I had relationships with, and I had some, credentials. Um, and I'm sure that was helpful too. So you're saying don't spend two hours typing, get excited and immediately send it out. <laughs> that oh can God, work sometimes. That, that can work sometimes. <laughs> and then when it gets rejected six months later, give up. <laughs> <laughs> that might not be the best approach unless your goal is to you know, I don't know, your goal is to like make a lot of money, then maybe that's a great approach. You can become a lawyer and (laughs) lead a different life. There was something else, uh, Carrie, you just said that I I found so interesting because it reminded me of something J. Robert Lennon told us when he was on a while back. He, He had mentioned that he has found over the years with his students and maybe a little bit in himself early on that it's much harder for writers who were excellent students coming up 
in high school and college because of what you just said, not being used to the absolute glut of rejection and, you know, knows for consecutive years on, on work that has merit and, and how different that is for someone who's used to just getting it done, getting good grades, you know, getting through pushing, you know, all nighters, whatever it takes and how that approach doesn't necessarily yield results early on in publishing and how difficult that can be for people who are wired in that kind of, you know, good grades, get everything done manner. Yeah, that seems so true to me. It seems so true to me. Definitely. You really need, you know, you need to be comfortable taking risks, mm-hmm. to be comfortable with failure. You need to be comfortable or maybe not comfortable, but you need to be able to do these things and do them again and again. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you know, you also need to, to learn, or I needed to learn to trust my own authority, you know, not to look to someone else for the right answer or for confirmation of something. Um, That's the hardest bit, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Because when you're told no, you know, even if it's a nice no, Mm -hmm. you just think, well, there's something wrong with it, you know, instead of trusting in what was there. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I would send a story out to a couple of magazines and, um, you know, one might be run by grad students who can be great readers and publish really interesting work, of course, um, you know, but sometimes it would get rejected there and then taken by like the Kenyan review or something. Right. Um, Like, you know, it's people come to the reading experience with different backgrounds and tastes and, and one no doesn't necessarily mean the work doesn't have merit. Definitely. And also the, the note, I mean, you know, there can be great edits offered up. You could even say, you could even go as far as say correct edits or some kind of, you know, something that could elucidate a moment in the story, but it doesn't mean that you need to take it. And it doesn't mean that it's actually right. And I think what you were just describing about, you know, getting a sense of your own authority is, has a lot to do with obviously keeping out, you know, all the whack things you're going to hear about your own writing throughout your, your career. But also there's a lot of, there's a lot of well-intentioned and intelligent things you're going to hear about your writing that don't mean anything. And if they're not coming from the same place as the best of the work, it doesn't have value. And until you really are comfortable with your decision-making in a, in a, in a repeated daily way, you're not going to have that. Yeah, I think that's so right. And there there are so many ways to tell any story. There's so many craft solutions to any, anything that you want to accomplish or address. Um, And so I think it's really important both to learn to take, you know, feedback seriously to see your work through another reader's eyes but also to understand, you know, that you need to decide what you want the work to be and that ultimately you need to make your, your own decisions about your goals and then how you're going to achieve them. What, what were your experiences like with workshops, with getting feedback on your writing? Did either of you struggle with, with that, with sorting that out? I think um, a long time I, I was trying to write the way that I thought I was supposed to write 
and anytime you do that, it, it doesn't work. Right. Cause it's, it's not your voice. Um, and so I was trying to write these very polished, like New Yorkers style stories and they were very like fine, <laughs> you know? Um, and until I just kind of like got really annoyed with myself and, and just said, you know, fuck it, I'm going to write the way I want to write. Um, that was when things opened up for me, but even before, you know, even, even during that time, I, I was told that I wasn't good at plot. You know, I was told, I was told all kinds of crazy things. Um, I think it's like Alex was saying, you have to like, know what feels true, like really feels true. Um, and know what is just like someone's preference, you know, because like, like Alex also said, there's a wide world of lunatics out there. <laughs> they <laughs> they want to read all kinds of different things, <laughs> you know? Um, I think the best yeah, thing out of workshop for me was um, like learning how to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. about you, Alex? I, I don't know. I, I definitely, uh, you know, grad school workshop that was helpful for me in that it was the first time I had really been around other writers. And, you know, I was barely a writer at that point. And it was like a lot of confidence and, you know, no, (laughs) nothing on the page that was worth anything. And I think being told many times, you know, this is not it, this is not it just really helped me. Just, I, I think, people, you know, a lot of people are really down on, I think the, the kind of more traditional workshop model and the way feedback is, you know, even was given as like recently as 10 years ago, people are, you know, there's a, there's obviously like a big sea change in how workshops are operating. But for me personally, it helped me just to have a competitive kind of um, probably too frank, um, type of discussion because it fueled me. I just, I don't know. It made me work harder. And I don't think that is, I definitely don't think that's the right environment for everybody to, to get the best out of their work. And I think, you know, hopefully you have a professor running the, the workshop who's able to kind of, you know, address individual needs and kind of because I, I think I think that's the way it should be. But for me personally, yeah, I I didn't mind uh, being told I was awful, so I could just like <laughs> get fucking furious for a week and work hard. <laughs> I don't know. That's a terrible answer, but it's the truth. Yeah, yeah I I think you know one thing that became clear to me over time. I've been told you know you need to go into workshop with a receptive attitude and mm. hard to hear feedback. And, mm. um, and so I worked really hard on doing that <laughs> being a good student. I wrote that down and I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> I'll get an A plus in receptivity. <laughs> but of course, you know, there, there's sort of two um, challenges there. <laughs> One is, people desire different things in their reading experience. So, you know, you, I mean, occasionally, right, one story appeals to a bunch of people. Um, that certainly can happen. But 
Um, if you ask a bunch of people what they might change about a given story, you'll get a number of different answers that could move the story in different directions um, because of readerly taste. Um, and then the other, the other struggle I think is that um, people have different ways of um, describing their reactions to their reading experience mm -hmm. and what they might suggest changing. And, you know, especially in grad school or an undergraduate workshop, you're all still learning how to be good close readers and how to articulate your reading experience and, and how craft works, what techniques might be used in different ways. And so, you know, I went back, I remember just sometimes feeling paralyzed because I would get, you know, all sorts of different feedback that seemed to ask for different things and, and not really be sure what to do um, with the story after that. But I would save all of my workshop letters. And I remember going back to a set of letters, you know, a couple of years later. And at the time, it seemed to me like they were conflicting with each other and, and they did in some ways. But a couple of years later, I could kind of see what was underneath what was being said a little bit more clearly. It was almost like often the subtext <laughs> um, was where there was agreement. Hmm. And I came to realize, oh, yeah, I forget what it was, but maybe there was like a lack of narrative momentum or there was a lack of depth in terms of how the characters were characterized. You know, there's something that was clearly lacking in the story. And some people were saying, well, maybe the story should start five pages later instead of <laughs> saying, such a classic uh, suggestion. <laughs> yeah. The story starts here. <laughs> like, well, maybe. <laughs> um, so I think just also learning sort of um, to read between the lines and to, to hear what was echoing through responses, even if they seemed on the surface to be in disagreement. That was something that it took me a long time to learn. What are you working on now? <laughs> Characteristically, I am working on like several things at once. <laughs> oh, my partner is always like, you need to finish these books before you start. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I drafted a book length lyric essay. Whoa. Excuse um, me. <laughs> uh, there's nothing an agent wants to hear more. You know? <laughs> if you loved me at my short story stories. collection to book length lyric essay, <laughs> fucking get lined up. <laughs> um, but it, it was something I wanted to do just for myself. You know, I, we'll see if it ever actually becomes a, a published book, but um it, I wanted to try writing something that was driven by process, um, which is not something I normally do. And so um, I was feeling a lot of anxiety about climate change and also the question of parenthood and whether that was something I wanted to pursue in my life. And so I decided to record the weather twice a week, um, every week for a year. And to just stand outside in the weather and just observe it closely. Um, as a way of kind of capturing the world as it is now um, and to see where that led me in terms of um, my thinking about the world and my relationship to it, my relationship to solitude, my relationship to change, um, my relationship to memory, thinking, you know, well, the, the weather's changing, the climate's changing. In 30 years, I want to have this document that I could give to someone who's younger, whether it's my child or 
um, or not, and, and say, this is what the world was like in this moment. Um, and so I have a draft of that and I'm thinking about um, how to how to go about revising that right now. Um, and then I, I'm two drafts into a, something that could be a novel. <laughs> um, I'll have to stop throwing most of it out if it's ever going to be a novel. <laughs> God. Uh, but uh, <laughs> hopefully I'm not the only one who's had that experience. You're the only one. It's weird. <laughs> We're confused. We don't know what the hell you're talking about. But... I always knew it. It's only me. Yeah, it's only you. I love that you're going to pass this beautiful document to whoever down the line, your child or someone else meaningful to you or your audience. And what I'm going to pass down the line is my Instagram. (laughs) Specifically my stories. (laughs) And I'm going to be like, see, this is what life was like. And you're going to be like, here's this beautiful, thoughtful document. Sometimes think about those early conversations we had about like, oh, it'll be so interesting how the internet will change the novel, right? We'll have like, oh yeah, oh my god, remember all embarrassing, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But then it feels like, like to me, sort of like, well, maybe Twitter actually is the novel that arose. (laughs) Oh, I don't know, maybe you know, this, this document we're co writing that captures so many interesting details and perspectives. If that's, um, if that's the case, we need a lot of people to stop writing. <laughs> we need like I have a list ready. Like a huge, yeah. I have a huge goddamn list and I am ready to publish it. <laughs> oh, and on that note, Kara, uh, I just want to thank you. Yes, you're not you. on you're not on Alex's list. I know oh, that for God, sure. No, 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 no. I'm pretty sure I could I could probably name half of it. I'm probably yeah. on it. Well, sometimes, yeah. That's okay. So am I. I'm on it. <laughs> I think we all need to be on that list for yeah. some. Oh God. Right. Healthy. Yes, yes. Instead of tweeting, go outside and write down what you notice about the weather, everyone. Please stop I tweeting. I, love, I would miss you both on Twitter if you <laughs> thank you Kara so much this was so fun thank you thank you oh did I do that what do you mean did you do that of course it's so good I love it it is not good no it is good I love it it's not good what an (sighs) idiot that was a fun one She's so great. And, and um, you never get it back. Um, I will be thinking about for a long, long time. That part you that I read. Love. Yes. Uh, that part that I read um, opened up something that I've been wanting to write about. I can't remember if I said this to you or if I said it to her, mm-hmm. but I'm just repeating yeah, you it. You said it on the pod. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm excited to to actually like it, it gave me access to something that I didn't have access to. So That's awesome. love when that happens, um, I have a question for you. Mm. Why are we on Twitter? Like why not, not why is I'm a writer, but on Twitter, but why is, why are you on Twitter and why am I on Twitter? Oh yeah. I, I have an answer. Um, well, two reasons. One, 
to laugh. Some of it is hilarious. And a lot of my friends are there making me laugh. And then also just, uh, you know, to get mad every day. (laughs) Cause I need a lot of help to get mad every day, man. I feel like it's happening more and more often that I'm getting so annoyed and like (sighs) mind boggled at how like simple and petty and, um, dumb people are. I don't know. I, I, and people angry and negative and it's making me feel angry and negative and yeah. uh i feel like I, I i guess i feel like we're all on it too much i guess i don't you're right objectively you're right but i don't i don't care that much it just makes me laugh like you know yesterday or the day before like there were all these tweets that where people were like i'm gen x and I'm quitting Spotify and this is what I'm going to do. And it was like all these motherfuckers thinking they're changing the world because they're quitting Spotify. And it's just like, that made me laugh. And it was so stupid. They thought that they were making one bit of difference and they're not even a drop in the bucket. They're like, it's nothing. And to publicly declare that is just so clowny. And it made me so happy. But I'm meaner than you, so I don't know. Like, whatever. I like all the I like all the people just making absolute asses of themselves every day. Yeah, I feel like there's genuinely funny stuff happening on Twitter. Yeah, that I for sure. that I do enjoy, and like when big things happen in the world, you kind of want to go somewhere and like see what people yeah. are saying about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I know that like a lot of writers feel pressure to be on because you need to be seen and you need to have this like whatever. And I know I, I feel that pressure too. Um, But like the times that I was off Twitter Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. No, it definitely doesn't matter. But I mean, if I, if I, if I was going to give you like a more earnest answer, I would say that it does in some ways help you see how some of the writing and publishing world is put together. Yeah, that's true. And it does help you to kind of understand who knows who and who matters to who, where they work, where they, whatever. And even if you only understand a little bit of it, it actually can help instruct where you're going to submit stories, what kind of agents you're going to query an understanding of what you even have a better understanding of what is possible and what is not possible. Um, I feel like in order to do that, you have to be, you have to put in all this time. And that's where I think it gets bad. You know, like, I think that's where it starts to just feel bad. And I think also like all too often, all of us forget that like Twitter's not real life. It is not real life. It's definitely not real life. Media follows Twitter. And so it's sort of confusing because it's like, what are you talking about? You know, like that doesn't. Well, I mean, it's not real life and it is real life in a way because I mean, just as an example, like, let's say tomorrow, the New Yorker takes a short story of yours. It would be a lot more fun for you on the day that it comes out online, you know, the night before the print comes out or whatever, to be able to send out that tweet and get a sense of some reaction live. Maybe some people, you know, get excited and it gets shared a bunch of times, or maybe you have some like great reaction from someone you haven't been in touch with, whatever. 
that experience, not that people wouldn't read the story if you didn't tweet out a link or not that, you know, not that it would really impact the life of the story potentially, although it might, I think that some of the experience for that, like in that kind of purpose, and even on a way, 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 way smaller scale in New York or something, you know, whatever, just some little journal, we get so, there's so little recognition for so much of what writers do that when there's an intense focus on something like that, even if it's just in the Twitter world, it can be gratifying. And even if that's like embarrassing or uh, silly or not real, it is real. (laughs) And even if, so I don't know, I have mixed feelings about it, but I also just like, I don't know. I don't really think about it. I do all, there's so many things I do in my life that are terrible for me (laughs) that I will just always continue to do and never change. And I don't care. I just don't care. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, I can't get worked up about it, but I don't know. I really appreciate that perspective. I truly do. Cause I do, yeah. I worry about it a lot and maybe I should just be like, I don't care. <laughs> well, you know, one thing about you in particular is like, you are able to just go on and off it easily, which I think is like, that's what's important. So if you don't want to be on it, you shouldn't be, you just don't be on it because you right. clearly can do it. You've done it for like year long stretches. I feel like. Oh yeah. I I almost made it like two years. Right. And I think the only reason he came back was because of this goddamn podcast or like, yeah. So just a lot, everyone. Yeah. (laughs) Especially from you, but uh, (laughs) yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't get that worked up about it, but I appreciate that. It helps. Yeah. Um, What else you got? Uh, Love that book. I started reading. Oh, Liv Stratman's book. Cheat cheat day which comes yeah she's coming on next week is it next week awesome yeah i think it's next week yeah and i'm really enjoying that and cool um it's this character who has started this like diet program Mm -hmm. but she's also like done that her whole life so she's Mm -hmm. got like food issues and body issues and i'm excited to read this one yeah like vibe with that because that's been my whole life and uh yeah so it's like it's funny but it's also like pretty deep on that kind of yeah. stuff so yeah i'm excited to talk to her about that i'm really excited to read it definitely she's very funny on the socials herself she so. is hilarious yeah. on instagram I, yeah i feel like she's on instagram more than twitter but she's so funny on there yeah um other than that i have a cold it's not covid god. i took a test thank god. Thank god. i took a few tests um what about you I've got, so tomorrow is my Friday. It's my split shift. And then I work or I'm off Tuesday, Wednesday. I work Thursday, Friday, and then I'm off for nine days. Oh, nine days. That's amazing. I know. I'm like so excited and Brit is off too. So (gasps) it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be unbelievable just to have, I mean, we're going to be working the whole time. Just like unpack. We still have like the whole our whole basement is we have a our basement is finished but it's just all boxes so yeah we just haven't had time with the girls it's just like you know i mean you know how it is it's like of if, course if one of you is down there doing stuff there's like a cap on how much you can get done and then yep yeah yep so and on that note i just got a text that my younger daughter's up so i'm gonna go quickly okay bye bye all right bye <laughs>
I'm a Writer But is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Oh, that's that's on my bucket list, as the kids say.